Um, I want to ask a question this morning, and I want you to just be honest here. Who in here has sinned before? Just Okay, the next question, I'm going to ask you to tell us all what it is. What, no, I'm, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Nobody's going to raise their hand in church ever again. No. Uh, that's good. I'm preaching to the right church this morning then, because we're going to talk about sin this this morning, uh, everybody's favorite topic, everybody loves talking about sin, um, but I want us to understand something. We serve a God who is a sin forgiver, whose nature is to forgive sin, and, and not in the way that we sometimes forgive people. Like when we forgive someone else, we sometimes do it holding something back inside of us. Well, I'm going to forgive you, or at least I'm going to acknowledge that I'm going to forgive you. But deep down inside, I'm going to hold something against you for the rest of your life. Right? That's our human nature. God does not forgive that way. Our God is a gracious forgiver. In fact, he uses some pictures in the Bible when he talks about forgiveness. says that he takes our sin and casts it into a sea of forgetfulness. Right? It's a deliberate forgetting Right? He's choosing. Not, it's not that he forgot about it because he's spacey. It's because our God chooses to forget our sins. Right? He removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. Those are the kind of pictures that we have when it's talking about how God forgives our sin. And so when we talk about something that's, that's maybe difficult, when Scripture talks about the unforgivable sin, I want us to understand that God's nature is forgiveness, that his default is forgiveness, and that it's only by our stubbornness that we are unforgiven. You can always ask the question, well, if, if God is so loving and so gracious, why are so many people dying and going to hell? It's because they're so desperately trying to send themselves there. And it's only by receiving God's grace and his mercy that we can experience that life. So we're going to jump into this study in the book of Mark, and, and um, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 3 this morning. And this is really the first week that we're diving into this, and I know that normally you would start with Mark chapter 1. Uh, it's, it's hard to pick. There's so many great passages in the book of Mark. It's hard to pick um, some of these different stories and, and, and decide which ones not to cover, which ones to cover. Um, the reason we're jumping to Mark chapter 3 this morning is because I've been preaching on the different Gospels over the last three years. We've done Luke first, and then we did John, and then we went through Matthew, Matthew last year. And I've covered pretty much uh, all of the stories in uh, Mark chapter 1 and 2 in previous Gospels in the past. And, and this was the first one that really caught my eye and caught my attention as, as I was planning and preparing and so I think that's where the Holy Spirit wants us to be this morning. But here's what I'd ask that you do. As we're going through the book of Mark, would you read through it too for yourself? Because I can't possibly cover everything in the next few weeks as we're um, going through this book from now until Easter Sunday. And we have to get through all of these 16 chapters in the book of Mark. But there's so much in there that really bridges the context of the stories that we're going to be looking at, would you just take some time over this next few weeks and, and read through the entire book? And as we do it together, it's, you have plenty of time to do it, but read through maybe the first three chapters this week 
on your own so that you understand what's going on, so that you have a better understanding of the scripture. Make sure to write yourself a note because you'll forget to do it the second that you leave here. I know how that works. But we're going to start in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 this morning. And if you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, I'd encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's some in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those. Um, If you don't own a Bible this morning, take one of those. That's our gift for you. They're there for you to take. We'd love for you to do that. Um, And then also we're going to be putting it on the screen as well. Or you can grab your phone that has a Bible on it. Whatever you want to use, uh, we just want you to be in God's Word this morning. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Let's read it together. Uh, as, and I'll read it out loud, you, you, read, you read along with me. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, so just, just take a second and picture what's going on here. Jesus is going to his home, to the place where he's staying at this time. And the crowd is gathering in so much, and they're bugging him so much that he hasn't even had time to eat, right? He can't even eat. He's, they're demanding so much of him in this moment, and they're gathering around him, all of these people, and his family goes to see what's going on. They're like, Jesus, come on, like, come inside, eat something. They're worried for him at this point. They're saying he's out of his mind. Now, Ironically enough, uh, now I wouldn't consider it a compliment if one of my family members said, hey, I think you're crazy right now, but compared to what the next group of people is going to call Jesus, that was actually a compliment. (laughs) And verse 22 says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Okay, so now just a few things for context purposes here, the scribes were a group of people uh, that were dedicated to the study and the copying of the Old Testament scriptures. They had, con- they had dedicated their entire life to this purpose. So they knew the scriptures probably better than anybody. They studied them. They copied them by hand. Right? There were no word processing documents like, like we have today with computers where you could just print multiple copies with perfect, ac- perfect accuracy, they would have one scroll next to them, and then they would have their quilt, and they would hand copy these scriptures onto parchment. And um, this was their life. And so as a result, they knew the Word of God. They were dedicated um, to studying it and knowing it, but also to following it and to making sure that everybody else followed it, sometimes even more so than what the Scripture said. They would add their own rules onto the rules that were already in Scripture. And they come up and see Jesus and what he's doing, what he's teaching, and their claim is, well, he's, he's casting out demons. Now, this story isn't in the book of Mark, but, but this account is actually talked about in Matthew as well. And if you read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 12, and you look back at what just had happened, there was a man who um, was possessed by a demon, and he was blind and mute as a result. And Jesus cast the demon out, and he was healed of his blindness and of his inability to speak. So he had just performed this incredible miracle, and now the scribes are coming up to Jesus and saying, well, we acknowledge that he did a miracle here, but it's by the power of Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is uh, it's a 
word that basically means like the king of all the other demons. It's, it's another word for Satan. So they're basically saying he's possessed by Satan, and that's how he's casting out these other demons. And uh, he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, I don't know if this was the case here. Maybe Jesus overheard um, what they were saying. But a lot of times in Scripture, it says that like even men were thinking things and Jesus read their minds. And I just kind of imagine them having a private conversation and saying this about him. And Jesus is saying, hey, you over there. <laughs> you talking about me? <laughs> right? And, and he calls them out and he says, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. And he gives this parable of this kingdom divided against itself. It says, if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So Jesus is giving us some teaching, some instruction through this parable on how we're to, um, how we're to interact with the world around us, right? Like, before we go and do ministry, um, he's saying we need to bind up the strong man, that, that Satan needs to be subdued so that the good can happen. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. All right, uh, this is not exactly the most positive ending to one of Jesus' teachings, one of the most exciting things to hear about the unforgivable sin. You're like, oh man, I did not come to church to hear about that this morning. Uh, well, too bad. <laughs> no, um, so we know the context of Jesus healing this man who was demon-possessed from, from the book of Matthew. But in Mark's account, it gives us some information that, that Matthew doesn't. It starts by saying, that his family and his friends were trying to intervene as Jesus was teaching the crowds, as he was interacting with these people. And they think he's gone crazy. Now that's hurtful, right? Like his own family members think that he's crazy. The people that he's closest to think he's going nuts. Here's Jesus trying to bring the good news to this world that's so broken and so hurting, and his own family isn't believing what he has to say. Uh, to be fair, they were probably a little fearful of how the religious leaders would respond, and, and that fear would have been justified. And also, Jesus was attracting a pretty major crowd here. People were starting to follow him around. This is a small town. Like, this wasn't a, a, big play, a big city. Like Everybody in town was congregating around Jesus, and these were all people that knew him and knew his family as well. And so... He's bringing in all these people, and not just normal people, too. He's bringing in demon-possessed people. And he's bringing in sketchy fishermen. 
and, and uh, tax collectors and, and all the people that maybe weren't the most wonderful people to affiliate with. And now they're hanging out at this house. I'm like, they're probably thinking, we're going to get robbed at some point as this is going on. Like, um, we don't want to be around this group, and we certainly don't want to be around them so much that we don't even have a chance to eat dinner together. Now, it's not that they aren't believers in the God of Israel. It's not that, um, that they would want to deny the truth of the Scripture, but they, like a lot of believers today, would rather fly under the radar right, than be labeled as somebody who's too fanatical. I wonder, I, I maybe just ask you to think about this for a second. Has anybody ever told you that you're a fanatical Christian, that you're out of control, that, that you're um, a little bit crazy about your faith? Uh, and if the answer is no, maybe you ought to ask yourself, why not, right? Why don't people think the same things about me that they think about Jesus? Now, in our culture, in our world today, there are a lot of things that it's perfectly acceptable to be fanatical about, uh, right? Even to the point of being ridiculous. But if you're excited about your faith, you're a nutcase, you're a fanatic. <laughs> we'll find people in our world that will defend all sorts of crazy behavior, um, whether it's maybe looting and burning property in protest, like we saw here in Minneapolis a few years ago, or what happened at the Capitol uh, as people stormed the Capitol um, after the election. Uh, this kind of behavior is often defended and more acceptable than really being excited about our faith in Jesus Christ. Right? We even have people that will put oversized slices of cheese on their head to show support for their football team. And that's defended, right? There are people in this room that would defend it right now. Some of you are amening. <laughs> Did not expect that, right? <laughs> but, but here's the deal. If we talk about our faith, if we're excited about what Jesus has done in our life, then we're just kind of a crazy person. And don't get too crazy about your faith. You're going to offend somebody. Amen. Right? That's the world that we live in. Now, uh, I read this definition of a fanatic, and I think this is a, a really good definition. Of, a fanatic is a person who, having lost sight of his purpose or goal, doubles his effort to get there. Let me, let me say that again. That takes a little bit of brain power to like, think about it. A fanatic is a person who, having lost sight of his purpose or goal, doubles his effort to get there. Now, I think some Christians do this, right? We get so excited about being a Christian that we lose the point of Christianity. And, and we completely focus our efforts and our energy in the wrong area. But I will say this, Jesus was not that guy. Jesus never lost sight of his purpose. In fact, he lived his life with a laser-like focus that ultimately led him to the cross on Calvary. Everything that he did was purposeful and intentional and planned. And if we model ourselves like Jesus, we should live with that same focus, 
that same purpose, that same concentration. So there was this family's reaction to what was going on, but then there was the attack from the scribes as well, and, and they were much more um, direct and hurtful with the words that they said. Um, now, the scribes were actually established at the time of Ezra, uh, so way back in the Old Testament, this, this idea of studying and copying the scriptures, they would also draft legal documents and, and they were enforcers of the law. They would make sure that everybody was doing the right thing in the right way. And if uh, they wanted to make up more standards, they were welcome to do that as well. And so they did not get along with Jesus, who didn't necessarily conform to their standards and practices. And their accusation was that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which is the king of demons. So it would have been a reference to Satan himself. Basically, um, he's accusing Jesus. They're accusing Jesus of operating by the power of Satan. And Jesus points out the ridiculousness of that argument. Um, now, to me, it's very clear that the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. They were jealous of the attention that he was getting. Jesus was engaging he was smart. He had supernatural power. And they had none of those things. And so people were tired of the message that they were beating them over the head with. And they were excited by the gospel that Jesus was bringing, by the good news that Jesus was declaring. Listen, not everybody's going to agree with the gospel message as, as you tell it to people. But they shouldn't be bored by it either. Right? It's the most powerful thing that we have to declare. It's the most powerful truth in the world, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if people aren't engaged by that, then you're probably not doing it justice. Right? We should be excited about what God has done for us, about the, the hope of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we're talking about it with others, they should be interested, at least, even if they're not accepting it. And so for me... Uh, personally, um, when I'm talking with someone else and I hear them criticizing other pastors and other ministries, I have just red flags going up like crazy. You know why? Because <laughs> critical people are critical no matter where they are. And if they're criticizing somebody else, then they're probably going to eventually end up criticizing you too. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for discernment. We ought to be discerning. Um, but there's a difference between being a discerning person and being a critical person. Listen, there is no such thing as a perfect pastor. Now, here's Jesus, who actually was perfect, right? He lived a perfect life. He never said anything wrong, and people were still critical of him. I never want to be famous. Can I just say that? <laughs> because at some point, I, I'm going to say something stupid. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to do something dumb. And, and in our world today, if you're famous enough, your mistake is going to become a public mistake. Right? And everybody's going to know about it. And the less famous I am, the less people know how stupid I am. Right? Uh, and, and I look at our world today, and, and listen, we as a church, not, not like West Point Church, but as the church as a whole, 
we are masterful at eating our own. Right? We have people who are serving the Lord, who are doing their best to honor God with the gifts that, they've, that he's given them. Um, and they don't do everything right, and they don't do everything perfectly. But they're trying to serve the Lord, and they're trying to honor him. And we are so quick to criticize everyone and everything because they're not doing it the way that we think that they should do it. Now, I, I'm not saying that there are not false prophets, that there are not people that are, that are teaching a gospel that is, that is not true and that is not accurate, and we ought to be discerning of the message that they're speaking. But we also ought to check ourselves to not be so critical about everything everyone else does. Um, one of the things that we do here in this community, we, we gather together a couple times a year. We started doing this uh, a couple of years ago. We gather together with other churches, and we have a worship night. And it's been so powerful. Uh, we hosted one of them here. The place was packed. I'll tell you right now, it was one of the best nights that I've had as, as pastor at this church. I loved it. It was so cool watching all these churches t come together, united in purpose, united in heart in that moment, and worshiping together. Now, do I agree with everything that every other church that participates in those things teaches? No. Are there pastors perfect people? Nope. I'm not either, right? So, but we can agree on the most important thing. We can agree on what drives us, what motivates us. Our purpose is the same, that we want to see the world come to know Christ, that we want to be messengers of his gospel so we can work together, and we can partner together, and we can, we can link arms and unite in that way. And so here's a group of people who are committed to studying the Word of God, who are committed to knowing the Scriptures, and here's the literal fulfillment of all those Scriptures, standing embodied right in front of them, right? Fulfilling all of these different prophecies about who Christ is would be. They should know it better than anyone. But their claim is, oh, this man is possessed by Satan, and that's how he's performing these miracles. I mean, could they be any more blind? Right? That's Jesus himself standing in front of them. That's the fulfillment of everything that they've worked for, towards. And Jesus points out their stupidity. And then he goes on to say, listen, you better be very careful about what you say about me. Because there is a sin that you can commit. Your heart can become hardened to the point. He says in verse 29 that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In other words, he's saying, listen, the spirit that is inside of me, the Holy Spirit, he's pretty important. And you're getting dangerously close to this line. When you call him Satan, <laughs> ultimately, when you say, I'm possessed by Satan, you're walking down this line. It's a very dangerous path. It's a place that you don't want to go. Now, um, a lot of people have wondered what is the unforgivable sin. 
Um, in fact, it's led to a lot of speculation, and, and I think it's pretty clear if you study Scripture, and, and so I want to explain that to you um, this morning. But some people have speculated that, oh, maybe the unforgivable sin is murder, or maybe it's adultery because of you know, the results of those sin. Well, I can tell you from Scripture that it's not either of those things, because if you talk about David, who was declared righteous by God and a man after his own heart, he committed both those sins. So, you know, we can rest assured that it's not like I'm doing something bad enough that God can't forgive me anymore. That's not what it's talking about here. But blaspheming the Holy Spirit has to do with the hardening of your heart. Now, there are several sins that you can commit against the Holy Spirit that Scripture talks about. The first one is listed in Acts chapter uh, 7. It's resisting the Spirit, and Stephen references this as he's talking to a group of people who are about to stone him. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So the primary purpose of the Spirit is to lead people to sin, right? Jesus, uh, or not lead people to sin, lead people out of sin to Christ. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit when he left. He said, the helper is coming, and he's going to convict the world of sin. So his whole purpose is to point people to Christ. And so resisting the Spirit is a sinful behavior. Second one is insulting the Holy Spirit. Um, this is Hebrews 10, 29 talks about this. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So by rejecting Christ, by, by demeaning him, by blaspheming him, um, that's offensive to the Holy Spirit. It says it's outraged the Holy Spirit. It's insulted the Spirit of grace. Uh, just, just to give you a picture of what this is talking about, imagine for a second the perfect marriage proposal. Like this, this guy goes into the greatest detail, the plan, the perfect day. He's got, he's got multiple photographers and videographers there to capture the moment. It's this beautiful candlelit setting, um, and uh, it's just this picturesque moment at this amazing place. He's got a, a, an event planned where a private chef is coming in to cook this fantastic meal, and right before they're about to sit down to eat, he gets down on one knee and says, I love you so much. Will you marry me? And his girlfriend looks at him and says, no. <laughs> Why would I want to marry you? I don't even like you. I think you're, like, I think you're ugly. I think you're stupid. Like, I'm only here for the dinner. Can we sit down and eat now? I mean, how hurtful would that be? Right? How insulting would that be? And so that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is picturing here. That Jesus offers his life, gives everything for us. Revelation talks about him standing at the door of our heart and knocking and asking to come in. And it's like slamming the door in his face. That's insulting to the Holy Spirit, right? And there's a consequence to that as well. 
But then the third level, the, the worst level, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Um, the Bible talks a little bit about this idea of rejection. In fact, there are several passages in Hebrew, uh, and uh, as we'll read in a little bit in, in the account in Matthew 2, that what this means, it's a conscious rejection of God and his grace. When Jesus hung on the cross, he uttered these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't say, Father, forgive them, for they know exactly what they're doing. Right? There's a difference between ignorance and doubt and conscious unbelief. Right? Those two things are not the same. Not believing because we have doubts and misunderstandings versus knowing the truth and willfully rejecting God's grace. And what happens in our hearts is that um, a hardness can build up over time that as we continually reject God and reject his mercy and reject his grace, eventually there comes a point of no return that our heart has become so hardened that God's grace doesn't mean anything to us anymore. This is not God being mean and saying, hey, you've committed a sin that's too great. Like I said, it's not about murdering someone or committing adultery or a list of behaviors of something that we've done wrong. It's a willful rejection of the grace of God. It's a hardening of our heart. Um, there's a perfect picture of this that happened in the Old Testament. If you, uh, We're in small groups this week. We covered the Exodus, right? And we talked about how Moses led his people out of the promised land. And just prior to that passage that we studied this week, Moses went to Pharaoh and he demanded that he let God's people go into the wilderness so that they could worship God. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and he said no. And about six plagues in, right, God sent these judgments onto the land of Egypt so that he could convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Pharaoh said no over and over and over again. And after six plagues, it says something interesting. Instead of Pharaoh hardening his heart at that point, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, why would God harden his heart? Well, Pharaoh had already made a decision to harden his heart. He had hardened his heart five times already, right? And so it got to a point where God accelerated the hardness of his heart, that he wasn't changing his mind, and ultimately it resulted in more judgment for the people of Egypt. And that's a picture of what can happen to us. The more that we say no to God, the harder our heart gets. It's a warning to us it's to keep our heart soft and sensitive to the things of the Spirit. Now, I mentioned that this story is in Matthew as well. And if you read on in the book of Matthew after this story, Jesus gives this teaching. And I want us just to look at that real quick. It's going to be on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 36. And this is a continuation of the same story. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. 
you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's a quote from the book of Proverbs. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I can tell on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What's Jesus' point here in all of this? As a continuation of this story, he's saying, listen, it's not the words that you speak, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, that's the problem. It's the condition of your heart that's producing those words. So we don't have to worry about, oh man, I'm going to do something wrong and somehow commit the unforgivable sin and be outside of God's grace. No, we have to worry about the condition of our heart. Is our heart right before the Lord? Because if it's not, what's going to come out of our mouth is going to be evidence of what's inside of us and what's broken. Scripture's clear that man looks at the outward appearance of people. In fact, as David was anointed king, that's what was said about him. As Samuel was looking at all his brothers and he's like, oh, this one's good looking and handsome and tall and athletic. He would make a good king. And God says, nope, that's not the one I've chosen. Goes right down the list, ends up with scrawny little David. They didn't even, they didn't even bring him out at first. They, they brought all the other brothers. They're like, don't worry about David. It's not him. Samuel's like, hey, do you have any more kids? Because none of these guys are right. And I know the Lord told me it's going to be one of your sons. Oh, well, there's David, but it can't possibly be him. God says to Samuel, hey, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And out of... The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Some of us, we, we look at the words that are coming out of our mouth and we're like, oh yeah, I, I don't really believe that. Well, maybe there's something in your heart that's a little bit off that you need to get fixed, right? You need the Holy Spirit to do some work inside of you. The words that are coming out of your mouth are a reflection of what's going on inside of you. And so if you find yourself saying things that are outside of God's character and his nature, you find yourself speaking things that are unloving or untrue, then it's, it's a challenge to you that the Holy Spirit needs to fix something inside of you that he needs to address your heart. So what does this mean for us? Um, Let's, let's look at this in two different ways. First of all, what does it mean for us personally? Um, the way that Jesus was speaking this to the scribes and, and to the people that were gathered here, it's a reflection that this heart condition, this hardness can happen to anyone if we're not careful, if we don't guard our heart. I've seen people who have followed the Lord their entire life who have served him, who have maybe even um, had a prominent ministry role at some point. Maybe they've been a pastor or a leader in some way, maybe a, a speaker, an evangelist, and, and something happened and their heart got a little bit hard. And it began to corrupt inside of them to the point where they don't even acknowledge Christ as their Savior anymore. And we, if we're not careful... If we don't keep our heart soft and let the Holy Spirit continue to refine us and work on us to become more like Christ, this can happen to any one of us. 
And we need to guard against the hardness that can set in in our heart. We need to examine our own heart regularly to make sure that our heart isn't getting hard. It, it, it's so easy. It can happen so quickly. I know I use a lot of refereeing illustrations. Uh, it's because I, it illustrates so perfectly our humanity and our, our own sinfulness, okay? But um, one of the things that um, when we meet together with the coaches before the game in a basketball game, and I will always tell the coaches the same thing. Hey, just so you know, tonight, our referee crew, we want to talk to you. But can you wait until we're a little bit closer to you so you're not yelling across the court at us? And that, I ask them before that every game. None of them listen to it. But, but, but the idea is like we want a dialogue going because here's what happens. If, if a coach doesn't like a call and he sees something that he doesn't like and you come over to him and you're like, okay, coach, tell me what you got. Tell me what you saw. And he has a chance to kind of vent that in that moment. Okay, I hear what you're saying. You know, I saw it a little bit differently, but hey, we'll do our best to, to get it going forward. That can, that can alleviate so much tension and so much frustration, right? But if you allow it to continue where he gets mad at you and you just ignore him and you run to the other side of the court and now he's screaming across the court at you and the tension continues to build and his heart gets even harder towards you and by the end, it doesn't matter what you call, you never make the right call. That's how we are as human beings. And the same thing happens in our relationship with God if we're not careful. If we aren't managing the hardness of our heart, if we're not continuing to pursue the Holy Spirit, right? And so it, it's that act of repentance, that act of coming to God and saying, God, I need you to refine my heart. I need you to show me the areas of my heart that are sinful and that are wrong. Second thing is we need to have a sense of urgency in reaching our friends and our family before their heart gets hardened. You know, that's why we're doing stuff like Alpha, right? This is an opportunity. I know that many of you don't need that course right now. Maybe you already are firm on what you believe and you understand that. But listen, you're around a bunch of people every day that desperately need to hear the truth of the gospel. Maybe they believe in Jesus, but their faith is, is like kind of messed up and they're believing a lot of untrue things. And they need some alignment with the, with the word of God, with scripture, Listen, God puts you in their, your life, in their life for a reason. I can't talk this morning, man. God put you in their life for a reason, right? And before their heart gets so hardened, the statistics are clear. The best opportunity to reach someone with the gospel is when they're young, it's when they're a child, because their heart hasn't had an opportunity to get hard yet. And the longer it goes, the harder it gets. More people come to Christ before the age of 18. Uh, the vast majority of believers make a commitment to Christ before the age of 18. Right? So the best time to reach somebody is right now. Not to wait. Not to hope for a better opportunity. Listen, before their heart gets hard. We ought to have that sense of urgency. So who in your life needs the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who in your life needs the message of hope that you can point, that you can show them? Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I, I just pray for our hearts today. 
Lord, that we would be sensitive right now in this moment. Maybe we've been following you and serving Christ for a long time, and without even realizing it, we've allowed hardness to creep up into our hearts. We've wandered from the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that in this moment, God, we would humbly submit ourselves to the refining work of your Holy Spirit. And we would pray like, like David prayed, Lord, search me and know me. See if there would be any wickedness in my heart. Any area of my life that I'm holding back from you. And Lord, in this moment, I repent of that. And I give you control. Soften my heart. And remind me of the truth of your word. Lord, we lift up those who are around us too. Who desperately need to know the truth. God, give us the boldness like talked about, the boldness to do something that's maybe uncomfortable, whether it's having a conversation or inviting them to something or um, just letting them know that, that we're praying for them, whatever it might be, whatever your Holy Spirit leads us to do, help us to have the boldness and the conviction to do it now, not to wait until a better opportunity arises, but to trust you are, that you love them even more than we do. Lord, we pray for soft hearts, for our friends, for our family. Lord, for those that maybe we've given up hope on this morning. Lord, we know that, that your Holy Spirit is able to break through the hardest stone. And so, Lord, we pray Lord, for friends, for family, maybe for children or for of people in this room right now, for siblings, Lord, that have hardened their heart to you. We pray that, that you would begin to chip away at that stone right now by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you would use us in that process. Lord, we submit ourselves to you this morning. We love you, Jesus.